All right, good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Taking a break from Romans, we're going to look at Daniel and the resurrection for the next couple of weeks. You know, most Christians look for the resurrection to happen at some future day. At the end of time, that's when most people think the resurrection will happen. It's going to happen at the very end of time. In uh, 1998, I was in Orlando, Florida, speaking at a conference there, and uh, had a chance to talk to R.C. Sproul Sr. because they had a conference. R.C. had his conference in Orlando. We had a, a conference that kind of piggybacked that. Um, and uh, R.C. was asked, what keeps you from being a full preterist? I mean, you know, you, he, you, you hear him talk and he, he reads the scripture and he goes, well, that's talking about A.D. 70, that's talking about A.D. 70. Now, what is it that keeps you from full preterism? And his answer was the resurrection. And so he obviously couldn't buy the idea of the resurrection happening at A.D. 70. So I asked him, I said, well, what do you do with Daniel 12? To which he really didn't respond. So I want to look this morning at Daniel chapter 12 and see what it tells us about the time of the resurrection. Because Daniel prophesies along with a lot of other prophets and along with Yeshua and basically says the same thing about this. And I think it's clear. Maybe it's just me. But let's look at it together and see what we see. You know, <clears throat> I really hate to start a book with the last chapter. But I really want to get back to Romans. So we're going to jump into Daniel at chapter 12. And I trust that you'll study the first 11 chapters on your own. That's your homework assignment for next week. All right. Well, let's look at Daniel 12, verse 1. Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Now, it starts out now at that time. And since we jumped into chapter 12, we don't have a clue as to at what that time even means. So we have to go back to Daniel 1 and start working. No, I'm just kidding. But let's, let's go back a little to get a context here. What does he mean at that time? At what time? Well, if we go back to 1014, he says, now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. You understand, he's talking to Daniel here. Daniel's getting this vision. And your people are Daniel's people, which are Israelites. The Jewish people. For the vision pertains to the days yet future. So he's talking about what's going to happen to Daniel's people, the Israelites, in the latter days. This is a vision of the future. It's of the last days of Israel. So that's kind of the context there. In 1140, he says, at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him. Now, at that time of chapter 12 is the latter days of 1014 and the end time of this verse here. So Daniel 12 is talking about the end times. Not the end of time, but the end times, which is referring to the end of the old covenant dispensation. Very important that we understand that. So that's the time frame. He's going to, Daniel's going to talk about the end times and what will happen in those end times. Then he says, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. Who is this great prince, Michael, that stands guard over Daniel's people? 
you know, I really want to talk about the resurrection, so I thought they're just going to move through, and I thought, you know, who is Michael? Who is this Michael? The name Michael, the Hebrew, is Mikael, El meaning God. Mikael is one who is like God. So Michael is one who is like God. That's what this verse tells us anyway, just from the name. If we go to Jude 1.9, it says this, but Michael the archangel. So now we know that Michael is an archangel. Archangel means chief of angels. So who is this chief of angels who is like God? Anybody got a, an idea? <laughs> Be quiet, Garrett. No takers? <clears throat> okay, the angel of the Lord, maybe. She's not going to commit there, but... <clears throat> All right, hang on, okay? I want to suggest to you that Michael is a pre-incarnate Yeshua or the angel of the Lord. How's that sound? Does it sound strange? <laughs> Nothing sounds strange anymore. Uh, you know, some would instantly say, well, this can't be Yeshua just because the verse you just looked at in Jude 1.9. Jude there says, the Lord rebuke you. You know, it says, the Michael the archangel, when disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So they said, well, this can't be Yeshua who is the Lord because the Lord's not going to say the Lord rebuke you, is he? I mean, and that kind of sounds like a good argument until you look at Zechariah. Look at Zechariah 3, 1 and 2. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord saying this, the Lord rebuke you. Hmm. So that kind of wipes out that last argument, doesn't it? So I guess the Lord can say the Lord rebuke you because there it is. All right. The Lord saying the Lord rebuke you. It's the Lord and he is saying this, this is the exact phrase we saw in Jude. But here it's very clearly the Lord. And then it says uh, the angel of the Lord. So the angel of the Lord is called the Lord. So Michael is the angel of the Lord. He is the Lord. And I'm thinking he is Yeshua. Now, let's look at some other scriptures that might help clear this up or might make it more complicated. First Thessalonians 416 says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Who is this? Who's it talking about? Who's the Lord himself that's right coming with the voice of the archangel? This is Yeshua, right? Is there any question about that? Yeshua said to come with the voice of the archangel. Now Jude said that Michael was the archangel. So is Michael Yeshua? I think so. Look at uh, John 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also have life in Himself, and He gave authority to execute judgment. So the dead are going to hear the voice of the Son of God, which is Yeshua. Because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. 
Now, if we compare those two texts we just looked at, if we compare 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and John 5.25-29, we see that Yeshua, with the voice of an angel, raises the dead. Here it's the Lord Himself. That's Yeshua. He's coming. This is the second coming. And He comes with the voice of the archangel. But John, we see it's the voice of the Son of God. So, obviously, it's the same person. And the Son of God is coming with this voice of an archangel. Now, let me make this very clear here. I know that the Jehovah Witnesses teach that Michael is Jesus. Okay, I know that. That does not make it wrong. Okay? Have you ever heard the expression, even a broke clock is right twice a day? You got that? It's right, I mean, twice a day that clock's going to be right on. Even though it doesn't move. Okay? And so people can stumble across something and be right about it. Now, the JWs teach that Jesus is a created being and not God. That is wrong. I'm not saying that at all. Don't for one minute think that I believe that Yeshua is a created being. Okay? I'm not saying that. So please hear what I am saying. Or that I think Yeshua was an angel and he later elevated to one of these lesser God statuses. No, Yeshua is fully divine as is the Father. He is the Son of God. By saying that the archangel Michael is Yeshua, I'm not saying he's not God. JWs are saying that. I'm not saying that. Alright, so they will say Michael is Jesus. We're, we'll agree on that. That's as far as we'll go. They, we could not agree on who Jesus is. That's the whole problem, okay? The word angel simply means messenger. Archangel means chief of angels. And so many times in the First Testament, the angel of the Lord comes, yet when we read the text a little closer, we see that it's really Yahweh. It's not an angel at all, but it's Yahweh who comes as the angel of the Lord. And I'm wanting you to think about the fact, could this be Yeshua? When the word angel is used, it does not have to mean created race of beings that we know angels are. All right? Angels, messenger. All right? You know, in the, in the book of Revelation, you know, it says to the angel of the church at, he's not writing to an angel, okay? It's a messenger. And that's that word. Angelos means messenger. Let's look at Joshua 5, 13 through 15. It says, Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, rather I indeed come as a captain of the hosts of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth. Here's the, here's the captain of the armies, the angel, the captain of the angels of the hosts of the Lord. And Joshua falls on his face. Now, if this is an angel, what should this angel say now that Joshua's on his face? Get up. Don't worship me. I'm an angel, right? That's what angels do say. We'll look at that in a minute. He bowed down and he said to him, Why has my Lord, what has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy. Why? Because Yahweh was there. It's a holy place. He didn't say, no, no, get up. And that's what he should have done. He is given worship. In Revelation, when John tries to worship the angel, the angel says, hey, don't do that. Revelation 19.10 Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. 
I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. From the test, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Only Yahweh is to be worshipped. So the prince, this prince that Joshua saw must have been the Lord. Because Joshua was told that the ground is holy, take off his shoes. He's in the presence of Yahweh. So we see this divine being accepted the worship and the reverence that Joshua gave him. He actually invited Joshua to worship and to reverence him. Look at Judges 13.21. It says, Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, We will surely die, for we have seen God. All right, now get this. Now the angel of the Lord did not appear. So the angel of the Lord did appear. And this is Samson's mom and dad. All right. Manoah knew that he saw the angel of the Lord. Now watch what he says. We've seen God. This angel of the Lord was God. It's not just some angel that he saw. The angel of the Lord is the Lord. More specifically, I think, pre-incarnate Yeshua. Judges 13.21 But his wife said to him, if the Lord had desired to kill us, so again, they're calling it the angel of the Lord, and if she says the Lord desired to kill us, and she uses Yahweh here, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown all the, us all these things. Nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. So here she says Yahweh accepted this burnt offering, referring to the angel of the Lord. So the angel of the Lord is Yahweh specifically. Yeshua. We also see that Yeshua accepted worship when He was on earth. Many times He did. He couldn't have done that if He was not God. He accepted worship from the people around Him. Notice what Paul says of Yeshua in 1 Corinthians 10. He said, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now here in the inspired text, we find out that the rock was Christ. Now, let's go back to Exodus and find specifically who it is that Paul's referring to, what event he's referring to back in Exodus 14, 19. It says, the angel of God, so there again we have this concept, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So the angel of the Lord is in this pillar of cloud. When the pillar moves, when the angel moves, the pillar moves. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was a cloud along with darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. The Egyptians were kept from the Israelis. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now I saw this. I saw some rendition of this on TV not long ago. I was flipping through the channels and it was, you know, on the Christian channel and, and they had this thing. And it, I tell you, it made Moses look like he was straining. He's holding his staff and he's, oh, he's, I'm thinking, I don't think it, he had much to strain about, you know. But when they're going through, there's water dripping down and the ground's all wet. And I'm like, no, no, no. It says dry ground they went through on, okay? 
dry ground. <clears throat> then the Egyptians took up the pursuit. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them in the midst of the sea. And at the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and the cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 is specifically speaking of crossing the Red Sea and the cloud where God was. So Paul identifies him as Christ. Now in Exodus, we see it's the angel of the Lord who was in the cloud and went behind to go between the camp of Israel and the Egyptians. So Paul is clearly saying that the angel of the Lord is Yeshua. When the Lord looks down and causes the trouble for the Egyptians, we know that it is Yeshua who did these things. Could it be that we are seeing in this the activities of Yeshua before His incarnation? Is the angel of the Lord, who is not really an angel at all, actually Yeshua? Could His name in heaven in the past have been Michael? That's just what it seems to indicate to me. I mean, if you've got some other insight, I'd like to know that. And you say, wow, you come up with some crazy stuff. Well, just to show you that I'm not totally alone in this, commenting on Daniel 12.1, John Gill writes this, The archangel, who has all the angels of heaven under him, and at his command, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is as God, as the name signifies, that's the name Michael, truly and really God, and equal in nature, power, and glory to His divine Father. So John Gill and Dave Curtis think this might, Michael is Yeshua. Now that doesn't mean it's right. You know, it just means there's, there's a couple of us. I'm not all alone in this. You know, we both could be crazy. And I'm going to throw Matthew Henry in the mix too. Maybe all three of us are crazy. Matthew Henry says, Michael signifies who is like God, and his name with the title of the great prince points out the divine Savior. In Daniel chapter 12, he goes on to call Michael the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. Here's the Savior of Israel protecting, watching over Israel. We know that the sons of your people is a reference to the Hebrew people. Here Yeshua is the great prince that's standing guard over the Israelites. Maybe. I think it might be. Alright, verse 1 goes on. and says, There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Now remember, this is going to happen at that time, which is at the end time. At the end of the ages, this is going to happen. There's going to be this time of great distress. Now our dispensational friends will say, well, the great tribulation, that's going to happen at the end of time. And that's what Daniel's talking about. Daniel is talking about at the end times, but not the end of the world, the end of old covenant Israel. The Jewish age. So Daniel's predicting a time of great trouble in Israel at the end of the age. And Daniel tells us something interesting. During this time of great distress, a tribulation unparalleled, he says some of his people are going to be rescued. Look at at that time, at the time of this great tribulation, your people, the Israelites, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. So the Israelites that are found in the book are going to get rescued at this time of great tribulation. You know what's interesting? Jeremiah tells us the exact same thing. Look at Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 4 through 7. It says, Now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. Okay, so now we know the context. We know he's talking about Israel. He's talking about Judah. 
For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a man can give birth. That's a strange question, is it? Can a man give birth? No, men don't give birth. Okay, well then let me ask you this. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? Why do all the men look like they're giving, having babies? Why are the, what's this great pain, this great turmoil that they're in? There's a lot of pain going on here. And why have all the faces turned pale? There's a time of great terror happening here. Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is a time of Jacob's distress. But he will be saved from it. Jeremiah is talking about this trouble and he says there's none like it. That's the same thing Daniel says. Then he says that at the same period of distress, some are going to be saved, but he will be saved from it. So he's talking about the same thing this time that Daniel is talking about. He's talking to the same people Daniel is talking about. You know, Yeshua also talked about this time. In Matthew 24, Yeshua is answering the disciples' questions about the destruction of Jerusalem. They wanted to know, when is Jerusalem going to be destroyed? Because they're standing there, they're looking at the temple, and they said to Him, you know, look at this temple, look at and Jesus said, all these things are going to be destroyed. And they said, when? When's this going to happen? They wanted to know. And Jesus answered this way. He says, for then there will be a great tribulation. Now there we have it. There's the tribulation. Such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. Now Yeshua is talking to Jews, the same people Isaiah was talking to, the same people Daniel talks to, I'm sorry, Jeremiah talks to. All right? He's talking to Jews and he tells them, for then, then is, there will be a great tribulation. The then is referring to the context in verse 15 and 20, when you see the abomination of desolation, which Luke tells us is Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and this we know this happened in AD 67. When Cestius Gallus, the Roman general, laid siege to Jerusalem. Sound effects, I love it. The Great Tribulation is not an event that's yet future to us. It was then. It was during the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans in the first century. And this is made abundantly clear by Luke in Luke's text. Look what Luke says. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Alright, Luke 21. Matthew 24. Talking about the same exact thing. Then recognize that her desolation is near. That You can figure that out, right? You see, armies are surrounding us. We're in trouble. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Get out of there. And those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city because these are the days of vengeance so that all things which have been written will be fulfilled. Take note of that little verse, that little phrase right there. All things which are written. What's he talking about? All things written by who? Well, by the prophets. All things that have been written. What does he mean by that? It's prophecy. All prophecy was to be fulfilled. Listen. By the time that Jerusalem is destroyed. We know Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. So that would tell us that all prophecy was fulfilled then. All prophecy. Daniel tells us the very same thing. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 9. 
Daniel says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. Again, your people, Israelites. Your holy city, that's Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. So Daniel's told that 70 weeks have been determined upon his people in the city Jerusalem. Now the Hebrew word you used here for have been decreed is hafank. And it literally means to cut off. The 70 weeks have been cut off for your people. Now, I believe that the 70 weeks are a symbolic time, not a literal time. All right, People want to make this a literal time. They say, well, it starts at this decree and it ends here. And they want to make it a very literal time. But I'll tell you, I have not seen anybody that uses the literal scheme make it work. Nothing fits in the literal scheme. It doesn't fit exactly. The things don't. And if it was literal, if they were to know exactly when it was going to end, guess what? They'd know the day and the hour. And Jesus said no one was going to know the day or the hour. They'd know about when, but not exact. So it's symbolic. But by the end of the prophetic time period, God promised that six things were going to be accomplished. All right? And one of the things that Daniel told would happen by the end of that time was he said, seal up vision and prophecy. Now, we looked at this a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the gift of prophecy. The Hebrew commentaries are in agreement on the meaning of seal up vision and prophecy. They say it means end, an end and complete fulfillment of all prophecy. In other words, everything given will be fulfilled, nothing more will be given. So Daniel's prophecy tells us about a time when all prophecy would cease to be given and what had been given would be fulfilled. When would this be? Well, Daniel's vision begins with a decree to rebuild Jerusalem and it ends with the destruction of Jerusalem. And we know, we'll look at that more next week, and we know that happened in AD 70. All right? Uh, look at Daniel 9, 25 and 26. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. How many weeks is that? Ah, there we go. we got a math major over here. 62 and 7 is 69, right? It will be built again with plaza and moat even in the time of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, now, first we have seven weeks, then we have 62, so that's 69. Now watch. After the 62 weeks, so that'd be after 69 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and end, its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. So here we see that Messiah is cut off in the 70th week. Now this totally nullifies the dispensational idea of a 2,000-year gap between the 69th and 70th week. Because he's telling us what's happening in the 70th week. And they're saying this doesn't happen for thousands of years and Messiah's been cut off. So Luke is saying the same thing that Daniel said, which is that the time Jerusalem is destroyed, all prophecy will be fulfilled. Now what's that include? Well, it includes the prophecy of the second coming, because that's prophecy, right? There's no more prophecy of a second coming. That was included in that. It includes the resurrection, that was a prophecy, new heavens and new earth, everything prophesied to Israel. And listen, the church has no prophecy. All prophecy is Israel's prophecy. All right? You're not going to find something given to the church that's not connected with Israel. It's all Israel's prophecies. All right? They were fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. The fall of Jerusalem was far more than the destruction of a city. 
It was the end of an age, the old covenant age. That is why Jesus said it would be a time of great tribulation, which has not occurred since it was the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. And for this reason, I ask, how could it be possible for there to be a future destruction of Jerusalem equal or greater than that which happened in AD 70? Yeshua said nothing in time would ever equal what happened in AD 70. Nothing. And dispensation is saying that we've got to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem over there. We've got to rebuild it, and then it's got to be destroyed again. Well, there's a problem with that. There's something occupying the space right now. All right, The Dome of the Rock is occupying the space, and you go try to tear that down, you're going to have a holy war over there. All right? And so, you know, dispensationalists say, well, he's coming any minute. Well, wait a second, he can't be coming any minute. They've got to tear down the, the Dome of the Rock, they've got to build the Temple of Jerusalem, then they've got to destroy the Temple. It's going to take a while. All right? So there's no hurry. But they say it's eminent. Now listen, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but I'm sorry to tell you, but the Great Tribulation is over. You missed it. Okay? It's an event that happened in history. Though most of the church looks for it to happen in the future, uh, and they can't wait for it. You know? You ever seen Jack Van Impey? Oh, he's so excited. The tribulation is about to start. I'm like, why would you be so excited about that? Look at Roxella. I see this in the paper today. And this happened over here, and that's a sign that Daniel talked about. Like, how do you ever get that out of Daniel? You know, everything in the paper is, you know, prophecy to him. Him and Roxella, they're just smiling together and they're so excited that thousands and millions of Jews are going to be killed any moment. We're so excited. I don't think they understand a lot. You know, he's supposed to be really knowledgeable, but I don't think he is. All right? It's over. The tribulation is over. It was Israel's tribulation. Let's go back to Matthew and notice what he says in the next verse. He says, Unless the days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. This is the same thing we saw in Daniel 12. At that time, your people, everyone who's found written in the book, will be rescued. So Daniel, Jeremiah, Yeshua, all talk about this same time of great tribulation. Listen, and they're all talking to Jewish people when they say it. All of them. Yeshua tells us exactly when it's going to happen. Because later on in Matthew, he says this, Truly I say to you, Not you. He's not talking to you. He's talking to some people at that time and he says, I say to you, the people he's talking to, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, this is very plain. I think it's very clear. He's telling his disciples all the things he mentioned would come to pass in their generation. This includes the gospel being preached in all the world, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, the coming of the Son of Man. It's so clear that it troubles a lot of people when they come to this verse. C.S. Lewis says this is the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. Embarrassing? Why is it embarrassing? He says because Yeshua didn't know. He was mistaken. What else is he mistaken about? I want to know. You know, that's a little sad. That's a little scary. If he's wrong, people, we're in trouble. All right? This generation. And Yeshua uses the near demonstrative here. This generation, the one I'm talking to. Not that generation. Not some far off distant generation. He said that everything spoken of is going to happen to the generation he's talking to. Everything he just talked about. And you read everything that preceded that. 
So Daniel's talking about a time that the generation that Yeshua lived in would see all these things fulfilled. And the generation that Yeshua was talking to saw the destruction of the temple in AD 70. All right, let's go back to Daniel 12. And he says, at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Now again, the your people's Daniel's people, the Israelites. At the time of the great tribulation, all the Israelites that are found in the book are going to be rescued. What is this book he's talking about? Everyone found in the book gets rescued. What is it? What's this book? Well, let's go to Philippians and let's see what we can find out in something more about this book. You all right? Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement and also the rest of my fellow workers. Watch. He's talking about his fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. It's only mentioned here, the book of life, and in Revelation in the New Testament. Now some say that everyone's name is written in the book. And if you mess up, you're bad. Or you don't accept Christ, then your name gets erased at death. Well, that would make no sense in Philippians 4.13. It makes no sense at all because he's talking about his fellow workers. Their name's in the book. Well, no kidding. Everyone's name's in the book, according to this view. What do we learn about the book from Scripture? When are names written in this book? Huh? From the foundation of the world. Let's look at Revelation 13.8. All who dwell on the earth will worship Him. Everyone whose name has not been written when? From the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who had been slain. So we see here that there are people who are not written in the book of life, right? Everyone whose name has not been written. So there's a bunch of people their name is not written in the book. Look at Revelation 17.8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up and out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. So we see from these verses that some are not written in the book of life. And those who are written are written from eternity past. So I got some more bad news for you. The old hymn, there's a new name written down in glory, is wrong. There's no new name. You know, you ever sing that? There's a new day. I'm not going to try. And it's mine. You would sing, there's a new name written down in glory and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. No, it's not. God didn't get out his pencil and say, oh, wow, look at another one got saying, let me put their name in the book. God sat down with this book before he ever created the world and he wrote out a bunch of names. I love this person. I love this person. I love this person. I love this. And they're all written in that book. And guess what? It's, it's not written in pencil. Okay? He's not going to erase any of it. All right? There are no new names written, and those that are written have been written from the foundation of the world. We also learn that those who aren't in the book of life are consigned to the lake of fire. Look at Revelation 20.15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book, so obviously there's names not written, he is thrown into the lake of fire. So you definitely want your name in the book. In Revelation 21.27, we see that only those who are written in the book can enter the new Jerusalem or the new covenant. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now let me ask you this. Who chose who goes in the book? 
Who chooses? We? There's only two choices. You or Yahweh. Okay, let's, choose, let's pick Yahweh. Yahweh did. When did He do it? Eternity passed. Why? Because you are such a good person. No. Because of His good pleasure. Look at Ephesians 1, 4-5. through Just as He chose us. Okay, now we know who chose us. It was Him. Yahweh. Before the foundation of the world. Then we know when He chose us. Before you did anything good or bad. That we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Why? According to the kind intention of His will. Because He wanted to. Now I want to show you a verse that, that causes a lot of confusion dealing with this book of life situation. Revelation 3.5 He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments and I will not erase His name from the book of life and I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. So Christ promises I will not erase His name from the book. This statement is a source of controversy. All kinds of people go crazy over this. Can a believer lose their salvation? Could one of God's children be erased from the book of life? Well, you get all kinds of erroneous teachings from this. Some say that those who have been saved by Christ's redemption can fall away and be lost. So then he gets out the eraser and he just takes their name out. This is the classical Arminian position. It's absolutely and categorically denied in the Scripture. The nature of salvation provided by Christ is eternal. There's no other kind of salvation. You don't get temporary life. You don't have a 10-year policy, a 20-year policy. It is eternal life. Now, this is not a trick question. How long do you think eternal life would last? Yeah. Right. Until I do bad. Well, then it's not eternal life. It's temporary life. It's probation life. Whatever you want to call it. Our justification in God's sight is not based on our works, but on the perfect, finished righteousness of the substitutionary atonement of Yeshua. If you're saved, it's because of Yeshua. It's because of what He did for you. So what does this mean? And I will not blot His name out of the book of life. Why does He say He won't blot it out? First of all, He doesn't say I will blot it out. He says I won't blot it out. Now people say, well that implies that He could. This statement employs a figure of speech called litetes. Alright, litetes is extremely common in literature and in everyday speech. Litetes make a positive affirmation by negating its opposite. And the presence of litetes is often signaled by an obvious understatement. Some examples of litetes are, that test was no snap. Which means what? It was hard. It was a difficult test. Or, he's not kidding. What's that mean? Tell the truth, alright? Or, a fact of no small importance. Which means it's a fact of great importance. There's no explicit statement in Scripture that anybody will ever have his name blotted out of the book of life. It says the exact opposite. They won't have her name. So why do you get so upset about it? All right. The Lord is saying that believers are absolutely secure. If we believe the Gospel, we can be assured that our names are written in the book of life and we will live eternally in the presence of the Lord. God's heavenly church membership role has existed from the foundation of the world. It is eternal. It is immutable. Unchangeable. Alright. So during the time of great tribulation, the elect of Yahweh will be delivered from that tribulation. How did this happen? 
I mean, we see this promise. There's going to be this great tribulation. We know it's AD 70. We know it's the destruction of Jerusalem. But he talks about a deliverance, a promise of deliverance. Notice what Yeshua told his disciples. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. When you see this, Jesus says, get out of Dodge. All right, go. Flee to the mountains. Now watch, we're talking about great tribulation. Now, where this great tribulation, most people feel, is global, right? The world. So let me ask you, what mountains are they to flee to? Some uh, Mar- mountains on Mars? Oh, yeah, that's right. They got a rover on Mars now, so they're looking for mountains over there so we can have a place to flee when the tribulation takes over the earth. It's ridiculous. This is local. We're talking about Jerusalem, all right? When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, this is what they're to do. <clears throat> he says, who is on the housetop must not go down and get things out of the house. Now, people on the housetops then were flat, okay? They, they spent a lot of time on the roofs of their house. All right? It wasn't like ours. They're not there putting shingles on or anything. You know, they're just up there doing whatever, having lunch or, you know, don't go down and get stuff out of Just get out of there. Who's ever in the field must turn back and get his cloak. Don't go back to your house. You see the armies, just get out of there. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days because if you're going to flee, it's going to be a lot more difficult, right? And pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. So during this great tribulation, they're to flee to the mountains. Now, when they saw the armies surrounding Jerusalem, they're to get out. They were to go before the tribulation began. Now, it's a historical fact written by non-Christian historians that Cestius Gallus, the Roman general, he attacked Jerusalem. When they attack a city, they would lay a siege around it. They would surround the city. They would build a wall. They basically cut them off from everything because Jerusalem was a fortress. And they had to starve them to death. So they laid the siege against Jerusalem. And oh my word, the people are in the city and the Christians are in there thinking, man, when Jesus said, you know, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by, we should have got out of here for some unexplained reason. Cestius Gallus backed off. The troops left. All right? For an interval of time. The Romans just left. Thus giving every believer, every believing Jew in that city an opportunity to obey the Lord's instruction and to get out of Dodge. And they did. They fled. And people thought they were crazy. This is a fortress. Don't leave the fort. No, this fortress is going down. And they got out of Dodge. And Josephus, who was an eyewitness, he's himself an unbeliever, he chronicles this fact, and admitted his inability to account for the cessation of the fighting at this time after the siege had begun. He goes, I don't get it. I don't understand why they stopped. We know why. The Lord's giving because He promised His people would be delivered during that time. We can account for it. Yahweh was giving His people, the believing Jews, a chance to escape the siege, and the disciples took it. And just as Daniel 12 had said, everyone found written in the book will be rescued. They took off. They got out of there. Daniel said it. Jeremiah said it. Yeshua said it. And it happened, just like predicted. Now notice the next verse in Daniel 12. Wow, we got through one. Time is it. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. This is talking about the resurrection. I think we get that, right? 
They're sleeping in the dust. They're not really sleeping. That's a thing of death. They're in the dust. They're, we call that taking a dirt nap. They're all sleeping in the dust. All right, they're dead. All right? This is the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Now, remember this context. In verse 1, there's this time of great tribulation at the end of days, the last days of Old Covenant Israel, which we know was AD 70. So this resurrection happens after the time of Jerusalem's destruction. Not at the end of time, as most believers think. Most Christians think that the resurrection is a yet future event. But notice the next, they think it happens at the very end of time, you know, when everything's done, the world's all done, the world gets destroyed, then people get resurrected. But look at the next verse. These who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. If the resurrection's at the end of time, who are these people? And where do they come from? You know, they're out there leading people to Christ. So after the resurrection, we have people who are turning many to righteousness. Now, how could this be if the resurrection was at the end of time? It couldn't be. Who are those who shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse? It's believing Jews. Look what Isaiah said in Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. Nation will come to your light. He's saying, their light. What's Israel's light? It's Yeshua. And kings of the brightness of your shining. So the believing Jews were to shine to bring Gentiles to this light. And in Daniel 12, we see this happening after the resurrection. So when does the resurrection take place? Look at verse 13 of Daniel 12. But as for you, go your way to the end. We know what the end he's talking about, right? End of the old covenant. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. That's when Daniel was going to rise. That's what he's talking about. So according to this verse, when is the resurrection to take place? It's to take place at the end of the age. The end of what age? Listen, the Christian age does not have an end. It is an everlasting covenant. There's no last days for the church. There's no end times. The end times were of Israel. The old covenant age. Now notice carefully what Paul says in Acts 24. Paul's speaking to this crowd here. He says, but I admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law that is written in the prophets. So Paul says, I'm believing everything in the law and the prophets. That's all I'm teaching is what is in there. He says, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves. And he says this, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So Paul's telling them there's going to be a resurrection. And he tells them when it's going to be. Do you see it? You do if you have Young's literal translation. Because here's how... He says, there shall certainly be a resurrection, but Young says this way, having hope towards God, would they themselves also wait for that there is about to be a rising again from the dead. See, the words shall certainly in the New American Standard are the Greek word mellow. And whenever mellow is in the present active indicative is combined with the infinitive, it's consistently translated about to. So Paul told this first century audience, the people he's speaking to, There's about to be a resurrection. Not thousands of years in the future. If we're going to understand what Paul is saying about the resurrection, we have to understand who he's talking to. Listen, one of the most important things in interpreting the Bible is audience relevance. 
Understand who's the audience that's being spoken to by this word. Christians today just jerk out pieces of scripture like it's a Ouija board or something. You know, like it's a fortune cookie. Oh, look what I got for today. It has nothing to do with you. Who's it talking to? What's it talking about? Why is it saying that? We have to know. And Paul's talking to a first century audience. Christians today will say, look at this. There's about to be a resurrection. Mm, yeah, but you're reading someone else's mail. And it's 2,000 years old and that about to be is done. It's happened. He's not talking to us. Paul is specifically, he's talking to Felix here. He's talking to Ananias, Tertullus. He's talking to the elders. And he told them there's about to be a resurrection. So if the timing of the resurrection was soon to the people he was writing to, what does that tell us about the nature of the resurrection? It must be spiritual. Alright? And here's why. Because time defines nature. If the resurrection was to happen soon, and we know that was A.D. 70, then did people come out of the graves in A.D. 70? All these dead bodies float. You know, you've seen the posters, the rapture posters, all these people floating up out of the graves and coming up out of the water and coming up. You know, they're just floating up into heaven. Since we know the resurrection is past, we know it must have been spiritual, not physical. The resurrection of the dead took place at the end of the Old Covenant in AD 70. It was not a biological resurrection of dead, decayed bodies. It was a release from Sheol of all who had been waiting through the centuries to be reunited with God in the heavenly kingdom. We can see this. We can understand this idea of it being spiritual, not physical. If we look at the teaching of Hymenaeus and Philetus, we see several things about the resurrection beliefs of the early Christians. Look at this scripture, 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them, Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, watch what they say, saying the resurrection has already taken place. And people will say to us, see, you're just like them. You're saying the resurrection has taken place. Yeah, but I'm saying it 2,000 years later than they did. Okay, so we're a little bit different. The early Christians, listen to me, they must have believed that the resurrection would be spiritual in nature and therefore not subject to confirmation by any physical evidence. If the early Christians had believed that the resurrection would involve physical bodies coming out of the graves as taught today, then Hymenaeus and Philetus could never have convinced anyone that it already happened. they just go over to the graves and go, look, the graves are intact, the people still there. We'll even dig them up over the castle. Look, they're still there. Why do you say the resurrection is taking place? But people were believing it had happened. So they must have not thought it was going to be physical. They also must have believed that life on earth would go on without material change after the resurrection, right? Most Christians today believe after the resurrection, the world gets burned up, it's all different, we're all gone, we get the new heavens and new earth come out of the sky and all that stuff. Well, then, if they believed that, they would have just looked at Hymenaeus and said, look around, everything's the same way. Obviously, the resurrection hasn't taken place. We're not on a resurrection. A uh, renovated planet? It hasn't happened. So this teaching would have been impossible if they were talking about physical events. No one would have paid any attention to them. The reason that they're teaching that the resurrection had already happened was overthrowing the faith of some was that it postulated, listen, a consummation of the spiritual kingdom while the earthly temple still stood. That was a mixture of law and grace. This destroyed the faith of some by making the works of the law part of the new covenant. 
Because they're combining the two. The resurrection had not happened. As long as that temple was still standing, the resurrection had not happened yet. When it fell, the resurrection took place. And we'll pick this up next week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I pray that we would all have the heart of Bereans. We would learn to search the scriptures. We would compare scripture with scripture. We would understand, Lord, the principles of hermeneutics. and We would apply them as we read the Bible. Lord, I thank you for the truth you reveal to us. In the name of Yeshua, we pray. Amen. All right, questions this morning. Comments. And the whole Michael thing, like I, I showed you just some of the scriptures, okay? There's a lot more scriptures that you could, I mean, we could have spent the whole morning just talking about Michael, you know, trying to defend the fact that, you know, that simply seems what the Bible says. You know, it connects the dots there on that issue. So I never believed it until this week and started studying this and like, wow, look at that. And Alex asked the question, why two different names? Well, when he was born, he was given the name Yeshua. Why? Because Yeshua means he's going to save his people. Alright? So that was the name he was given at birth because he came to save his people. And so that's why I think the pre-incarnate Christ, before he became a man, was called Michael. I, I don't know why, why the difference. That, that I can't answer you. I don't know why there's a difference there. Michael, doesn't, Michael means one who's like God and the name Yeshua means Savior. Alright? So he's the Savior of his people. And that's why he has the name Yeshua. And that's why I try not to, and I'm working to get away from saying the name Jesus, because Jesus doesn't mean anything. But Yeshua means Savior. Alright? That was his Hebrew name, Yeshua. If you go back, you tra- get transferred. If you ever get a time machine and you go back to the first century and you're talking to the disciples and you say, Man, it must have been so cool to be with Jesus. And they go, Who? Jesus? We don't know Jesus. Who is that? You know? Okay, so it's just, that's why I'm. I'm trying to make the... To me, it's important. It might not be to you, and that's okay. But to me, it's important. So I'm trying to make the conversion to using his proper name. I don't usually respond to people when they call me Fred. It's not my name. You can call me Fred. I'm not going to respond. Okay, Betty in Ohio. Hey, Betty. It says, doesn't written in the book before the foundation of the world put to rest the idea that God looked down through the ages of time to determine who is elect because those words were penned during the ages of time? Yes, Betty, it does. And to me, it does anyway. Obviously, you know, to Arminian brothers and sisters, it doesn't. They don't see that. But God chose before the foundation of the world. But see, you know, the view is that people, you know, like she said, that God looked into eternity past. He looked into the future, though, and he said, oh, I see, they're going to trust me. I choose them. So, what is this choice based on then? It's based on your trust of him. Well, then it goes back to you again. But it's not based on you, it's based on him. And he chose an eternity past before you were ever around, before you did anything good, anything bad, you know. I heard someone say, I'm glad he chose me before the foundation of the world. If he waited till I was born, he never would have chosen me. Okay? You know, well, God, God knew what He was doing, and uh, He chose before the foundation, so praise His name. All right, Kath, I think we're done. Let's come on down here. And uh, next week, we'll pick this up in Daniel 12, and I'm going to try to run through the whole chapter next week.